Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for this latest episode in our podcast series on the impacts of the low oil price environment on disputes. As we all know, the outbreak of COVID-19 has heightened already challenging circumstances in the oil and gas industry, given the price volatility and oversupply to the market, which is further fueling a drop in the oil prices. Today with Chris Parker, I'll be talking about those flashpoints for disputes in the context of joint venture agreements, and in particular, we'll be focusing on the joint operating agreement. Chris is a partner in our London International Arbitration team. I'm Charlie Morgan, a senior associate in the team here also in London. Chris, would you like to introduce us to the joint operating agreement a little bit, its functions and the impact on the agreement in the context of low oil prices? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Charlie. And hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Most of you will probably be familiar with the Joint Operating Agreement or the JOA. It, of course, governs the relationship between the partners in the project from initial exploration work to production and typically decommissioning. And it sets the contractual framework for all aspects of that relationship, including in particular the decision making process that will govern joint operations the conduct and funding of joint operations, when and how some but not others of the JOA partners will be entitled to conduct exploration or development activities, and critically designating an operator to manage the joint operations on behalf of all the parties, and we'll come back to the operator later. Um, it will also cover typically the, the, the procedure and the rules for the entry and exit of new partners or existing partners, so the sale of interests um, and they're typically very long term. Um, these chairways designed to cover life of the PSC or, or concession agreement in practice, and of course, dealing with all the uncertainty that goes with exploration and hopefully development production in an oil field. Often based on world forms, um, so that's uh, particularly the IOPN world form is very commonly used in the industry, and that is, um, and we see some consistency arising from that when it comes to disputes that, that, that can occur because a lot of the lot of the contractual provisions are similar in lots of different GOAs, even if they're not identical. So that's uh, an introduction really to what the GOE does. What Charlie and I thought we'd focus on today is um, to start to focus on today really because it's part of a little mini series in in, in GOAs in our podcast. But where, where and how can the low low price environment spur disputes and the JOAs in between joint venture partners. So what we're going to talk about today in particular is issues arising around funding and approval of joint operations and how that can cause operators and non-operators to fall out. We're going to cover in our future sessions, others will cover dealing with co-venturers who may default on payments. So they'll be covering issues such as the default provision under JOAs and forfeiture and the other consequences of that. And also in another podcast, the issue of the operator's duties and what rights and uh, responsibilities the operator has and the circumstances in which the non-operators may look to either say the operator is not performing its duties or even seek to remove the operators. So uh, a lot of our focus today then is really going to arise from the, the work program and budget, the question of approval of joint operations, approval of the work programs and budget for those operations and also authorizations for expenditure for particular activities. And Charlie, perhaps you could just introduce that topic for us and tell us what we're talking about. Thanks very much, Chris. Absolutely. So as everyone knows, oil and gas exploration and production is a very cash intensive business. 
Um, and as you rightly said, the, the JOA effectively governs the risk allocation between the joint venture partners from the outset of their relationship right through potential withdrawals, exits or defaults, which others in this series will talk about. And at the crux of it, there is a method, generally the, the operating committee, by which the operator is held to account by the non-operating parties who have voting rights to approve the operations that take place in relation to the project. And those joint venture partners will generally be uh, private entities, but also national oil companies who may have an interest in the project. And so in order for the operator to undertake certain activities, it must do so under approved work program and budgets, which are effectively a schedule of activities that will take place over any given year or period that are approved in accordance with the voting requirements under the agreement. And in the context of low oil price, and in particular in the context of cash flow challenges that many operators and their partners are facing at the moment, uh, there may be a divergence in, in strategies and in priorities between the different players. And so when it comes to voting on whether or not to undertake certain activities in any given period, there may be disagreements. And so in that context, an operator would not be able to proceed subject to what the voting requirements require in terms of unanimity or number of entities who need to agree the operations. The operator wouldn't be able to proceed and then charge to the non-operating parties their share of the cost of those activities unless the activities had been approved under a work program and budget. And so as a flashpoint for disputes, we're currently seeing those disagreements coming to a head. And so some parties to the JOA may want to proceed with activities, uh, may want to be investing heavily in the project, whereas others may want to be preserving cash and actually either delaying activities or suspending activity in relation to a project altogether. And so one of the deadlock provisions that generally we see in JOAs is the ability for some or a subset of the partners to, to carry out operations on an exclusive basis. And that's often referred to as sole risk activities, uh, where the pass mark in relation to the approval of a work program and budget or a particular activity under it is not met, but the defeated members still wish to go ahead. And so they can proceed with that activity at their sole risk, meaning at their cost without recharging the share to the parties who have not consented. The alternative is less frequent, but sometimes also seen as non-consent provisions where the pass mark is achieved, such that effectively the, the activity will go on under the, the JOA, but the outvoted members can elect not to participate in the activity potentially. And I should also say on the topic of um, exclusive operations that not every activity under the joint operation operating agreement is capable of being performed on an exclusive basis. And most joint operating agreements have a list of prohibited exclusive operations whereby all joint venture partners need to participate or not, as the case may be, depending on whether or not the, the pass mark for voting under the OPCOM has been met. Other flashpoints uh, for disputes in this area include whether an operator who has voted against a particular activity is still required to perform it on behalf of those non-operating parties who have voted for it. And then a final one, which we've seen and which often leads to quite high value and sometimes forward-looking disputes in terms of the, the quantum that needs to be assessed is whether parties who elected not to participate in an activity can then have backing rights by virtue of which they pay back their share of the activity performed in exchange of receiving the upside when it eventually materialises in a production phase.
Another point to make is that on some occasions when a operator may not receive approvals or, or the pass mark may not be met under the opcom voting requirements it may still in some instances proceed with activities that are required for instance to meet mandatory minimum work obligations under a host state agreement so that's some of the things that i've been seeing chris what about you what, what have you been seeing in this market okay th th thanks charlie um no the, uh, it, it is very interesting and as you said the contrast often or the divergence in interest classically arises because one party is keen to progress, um, perhaps because they think it's required by the by the license, whereas another party is doing what it can to to save cash. So, for example, um, another area in which we've seen this arise is not so much in the initial approval of a particular, say, drilling campaign, but halfway through that drilling campaign, maybe or exploration activity, a proposed revision to the work program and budget where one where the operator is pushing for that to happen maybe there's been a cost overrun or, or, or new unanticipated work required and the non-operators are not um, key and do not um, vote in favor and similarly you can have um, in addition to the work program and budgets many joas provide for specific work above a certain threshold or sometimes specific contract towards to be put to the opcom as well either in the form of um, authorization for expenditures or afbs or for approval of the contracts itself now sometimes the jol will provide that that's informational only but it's for operators side but sometimes it requires approval and that can be another flashpoint for disputes where the work program budget has been approved but then um, an afe is blocked for some reason and then on contract award requirements we've also seen that come up in the future so what i mean by that is um, you have a, a, a approved work program budget covering particular work but the tender for a particular contract whether it's a rig contract or something similar doesn't follow the joa process strictly so the joa might require for example a competitive tender um, it might require approval as well, i just mentioned and we have seen cases where um, after those contracts have been entered into the joint venture partners have said no, you cannot charge those costs to joint operations because the contract was not awarded in accordance with the contract. So there's some flashpoints. Charlie, what do we, can we see any trends from any published cases on this? Do you think are there any particular points to note? Thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, I think going, going back to the points you just made, there have been some cases about the availability of injunctive relief against an operator from taking actions without the, the non-operator's consent. And so that stresses the inability of a, an operator effectively to proceed and recharge costs um, to, to non-operators unless the, the voting requirements and, and the necessary pass mark have been met. And in that case, the uh, CISO and, and um, Dana Petroleum, I think it was, damages were deemed not an adequate remedy despite the operator, Dana, offering to carry out the cost of the drilling and also indemnify uh, CISO, the non-operator, for any liabilities that arose out of the drilling. But the court held that actually there, there was no approval for the operator to actually undertake the work, and therefore the, the injunctive relief uh, should should be granted. Thanks, Charlie. That, that's interesting. And, and we've also seen um, some arbitration decisions on some of these issues. Um, they're confidential. Some, are, some we've been involved with as a firm and some are published in an anonymized form. But there was, for example, one ITC arbitration where the non-operator refused to pay cash calls uh, related to additional drilling work and said they were not covered 
by the work program and budget. And the operator argued, well, the cost may have exceeded the budget, but they were undeniably costs incurred in joint operations. And in that case, the tribunal found against the operator, um, and it found the operator had failed to prove um, that the sums claimed were costs of joint operations, or that they were costs that were contained in the approved budget, so they weren't allowed to recover them. So it shows the importance of adhering strictly to those contractual requirements. And so, Chris, we, we've talked a little bit about um, the, the, the flashpoints for disputes and, and what we're seeing. Um, how do parties to a joint operating agreement go about mitigating the risks of those, those disputes? Yeah, obviously, the, the critical question, Charlie, I'll come on to some procedural steps in a moment, but a lot of this comes back to relationships and communication. Typically, a lot of the disputes we see arise because that relationship has broken down. Either the operator is not communicating with the non-operator, or the non-op is not communicating its disconsent with the operator. So obviously that's not always true. Um, sometimes there will be situations where the best communication in the world cannot hide the fact that the non-operator has no money to fund or has no desire to fund any further activities. But often we do find that uh, the, these disputes are less likely to come before us uh, in situations where the parties have been talking and have a good relationship. But otherwise, in terms of procedural steps, whether well, as operator, the critical thing, of course, is to be completely familiar with the requirements of the JOA when it comes to work programs and budgets, when it comes to AFEs, when it comes to cost recovery provisions and the accounting principles and contract awards, and make sure you follow those religiously. That may not help you get the vote over the line on the work program and budget. Um, that's a different and can be a, a difficult issue as we've talked about, but at least it should help protect your position if you do go ahead and incur these costs you can establish that, yes, we followed those provisions to the letter and not give your non-operator a chance to pick away and avoid the cost of work done in furtherance of joint operations. But of course, and that also goes with cash calls as well, when it comes to cash call for those works, again, make sure you rigidly adhere to the requirements for that. And we've seen several disputes where the operator has not paid due heed to, to the requirements of the JOA when it comes to cash calls, whether as to format, whether it's to the estimates and the amounts they are cash calling for, and that can just avoid a whole heap of trouble later if the cash calls follow the process exactly. And then as a non-operator, of course, you, you, your role is to make sure you're monitoring what the operator does, make sure you're monitoring whether the operator is complying with those requirements, make sure you review the cost and allocation metrics, for example, provided by the operator and monitor, make sure they are giving you the information that you need to monitor the cost outlay as you go along. Again, to avoid a situation where as a non-operator, you feel that you're being cash called for money that isn't due for joint operations and you're faced with the difficult question of um, whether to pay now dispute later, which as we'll come on to in future sessions, is the classic bedrock of most JOA funding arrangements. So, Charlie and I hope that you've um, found this interesting today. It's a broad topic, and obviously each relationship will, and each discussion will found on, on the particular commercial facts in play there, but these are some common themes we've seen. So we hope, hope you found that useful, and please do tune in for the next edition, which, as I say, will cover issues arising really in relation to compliance with JOAs and remedies and the, the perennially thorny issue of default and forfeiture. So thank you again from me, Chris Parker, and from Charlie.